Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. again everyone welcome back to the front line with joe and joe joe priscillo as always joined by joe resinello and once more dear brothers and sisters let us go in to the breach on the veritas catholic radio network 1350 on your am dial 103.9 on your fm dial spreading the truth of the catholic faith to the new york city metropolitan area please be sure to download the veritas catholic radio network mobile app so that you could have access to all of our station's content uh if you want to give us some feedback you can go on veritascatholic.com veritascatholic.com there'll be a, a section there if you want to provide feedback for joe and joe uh or any other program on the station and uh, and finally if you would mind wouldn't mind uh support joe and i on social media at the frontline TV on YouTube, the Frontline TV, and also our website, thefrontlinetv.com, thefrontlinetv.com. And today we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Dr. James Papandrea. And we're going to be talking about his new book uh, published by Sophia Press, Reading the Church Fathers, a History of the Early Church and the Development of Doctrine. Um, now, many of you out there know uh, Jim Papandrea. For those of you who do not, I want to give a quick bio. James Papandrea is a Catholic professor, author, speaker, and musician. Um, I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, baptized Catholic, but raised Protestant and eventually ordained in a Protestant denomination. Jim reverted to the Catholic Church through his studies of the church fathers he holds an uh an md mdiv degree is it from fuller theological seminary and a phd in the history and theology of the early christian church from northwestern university jim is currently professor of church history and historical theology at garrett evangelical seminary at northwestern university as well as a consultant in adult faith formation and a regular speaker in parish and lay formation programs across the Chicago area. Jim Papandrea, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Hey, great. Th thank you so much. It's great to be here. And uh, this is uh, this is going to be fun. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for being on the show. And with that, I'm going to I'm going to throw it over to Joe Resinello. Doc, we always begin with a prayer because God knows we need prayers. <laughs> Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Jim, I'll be honest. We talk a lot uh, to people who have studied the early church fathers. We've talked to uh, Mike Aquilina a number of times. We've worked with the St. Paul Center. It always seems that when Protestants um, read all the way back to the founding of the church, if they're open-minded, they come to the the conclusion that I have to be Catholic. I mean, like we've talked to a number of people, um, and that's just being fair and honest and objective. I mean, not being biased as a Catholic man. Could you talk about your journey? I always ask people that because I find it interesting and I think it'll help people, people out there who may be Protestant, evangelical, um, of all the stripes, uh, you know, and kinds across America. Um, you know, you, you were in those, those, those pews and now you're Catholic. How did it happen? Yeah, well, you know, that's uh, your your comment is is not biased at all. It is the truth. It, this is what happens to us. Uh, and you know, Mike Eckelina, a good friend of mine, and the you know guys at St. Paul Center, you know Scott Hahn and all those guys. I mean, you know, you can you can just keep naming people that you've heard of who will tell you that the church fathers brought them to the Catholic Church or to the or back to the Catholic Church. Uh, and that was my experience too. It, it it rings true because that's exactly what happened to me. And here's the thing, you know, and, and I'm going to say this as one who uh, it, I, I consider myself very ecumenical. So I'm not, uh, I don't say this as a way to bash uh, the Protestants in any way, but, but 
Having said that, the you know part of Protestantism is built on a kind of uh, felt need to justify the Protestant Reformation. And, you know, when I was growing up in a Protestant denomination and I was going through, you know, catechism there and, and I got confirmed uh, in a Protestant denomination, you know, we were told as a part of our catechesis, certain Protestant myths about the Reformation and, and you know, Protestant expressions of the Christian faith. Like, for example, the big one, the myth that the Protestant Reformation was all about getting back to original Christianity, right? Here's the problem. Study original Christianity for yourself, and you will find that that is simply not true. And this this is, you know, Joe, you made the comment um, that, that we come to this point where we say, I have to be Catholic. That is exactly what happened to me. It's not like, oh, maybe I should be Catholic. It's, I cannot not be Catholic now that I know the truth about the um, the early church. And, you know, we, we, we heard all these other myths, like all sin is equal in the eyes of God. You know, that's a, that's a big Protestant myth. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's meant to sort of strip away at things like the, you know, the idea of uh, mortal sin and the sacrament of confession and stuff like this. Um, the biggest one, of course, is that you don't need tradition which is usually expressed in the form of what we call sola scriptura, right? I'm sure you guys, your, your audience has heard of that. Sola scriptura, this Latin phrase that means scripture alone. And it's this idea that, that all you need to be a Christian, to be faithful, to practice the Christian faith is in the Bible, is in the scriptures. The problem is it's not true. It's never been true. No one believed that for the first 1,500 years of Christianity. No one read the Bible that way for the first 1,500 years of Christianity. And the way that especially sort of more, you know, those who lean more towards a kind of Christian fundamentalism, the way that they apply sola scriptura is is actually self-contradictory because, you know, the, the idea that everything is in Scripture is not taught in scripture, right? I mean, it's self-contradictory because the, the the very doctrine of sola scriptura is not found in scripture anywhere. And so therefore, how could it be true? So um, so you know, in my experience, I discovered that that all of these sort of Catholic uh, the, these Protestant myths were false. And I became like this myth buster, and I continue to do this in my teaching and in my writing, is to, you know, intentionally debunk a lot of these, these myths. And um, because, you know, this is how you get back to understanding the early church and how you get back to understanding the church fathers and the original Christianity, if you want to call it that, um, by, by stripping away you know, these, these myths that are, you know, less than 500 years old. Well, what, what, what's interesting, see, I'm, I'm a lot less charitable, Jim, than you are and Joe Resinello. Okay. See, I, 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 I like, I, I say things, not that you wouldn't, but I, but like my, my thing is like, I said this to somebody in, in, in the past, I say, you know, if it's just you, if it's just you, Jesus in the Bible, I said, why do you go to your prayer group on Sunday? I said, why do you listen to this guy who says there's no authority yet? He gets up there, he reads a passage and he starts telling you what it means. No, I I don't understand like the inherent contradictions. If it's just you, Jesus in the Bible, then it's just you, Jesus in the Bible. You don't yeah. need to get together. You, you don't need to listen to the guy who calls himself a pastor. In fact, there's no need for a pastor because as soon as he does that, he's now the authority. While at the same time, he tells all Catholics, well, you people, you, you need to reject the authority of the Catholic Church. See, like I said, it gets me angry because it's very contradictory. At least be consistent. I mean, am I wrong in that, Jim? Uh, no, you're not wrong. I mean, here's here's another one of the myths. And, um, you know, uh, Scott Hahn and some of his recent work on the politicizing of the Bible and and on, um, you know, uh, the history of biblical scholarship has pointed this out better than I can, but I'll just say it. The Protestant Reformation will will claim, Protestants will claim that the Reformation uh, took the Bible away from the, uh, the hierarchy of the church and put it in the hands of the people, right? But that's not what it did. It took the Bible away from the authority of the church and put it in the hands of secular scholars, 
right? And so, um, and so that becomes a problem because now we live in a world where so many people assume that you know the more skeptical you are, the better a scholar you are, right? Which which is another one of the myths that I that I really try to to debunk in my teaching. But um, you know, but but the point is is that you know, like to your point, if you go to a uh, like a, a an evangelical megachurch you might hear a verse or two of scripture and a 45 minute exposition on that, that you're supposed to just sort of take the guy's word for it. And, and, you know, maybe it's good. Maybe it's a good Bible study, right? You go to Catholic mass and you hear, you know, a lot of scripture and um, you see, you actually get more Bible in the Catholic church than you do in a lot of these, these Protestant churches. Funny, but, funny yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> funny, right, isn't it? Go right. sit at Catholic mass and see how much Bible you got. That's, that's right. Right. But to your point, you know, the, the, who's, who's the authority for how to interpret scripture? Because I don't care what you say. Scripture does not interpret itself, right? It's, it's internally consistent. So you can use scripture to help you understand other scriptures, but it's not self-interpreting. And so we need help. And, you know, traditionally we, we put our faith in, in the tradition and, you know, in the, in the way that these truths have been handed down throughout the generations and the centuries, rather than whoever the most popular scholar is, or whoever has the, you know, the chair in the department at some prestigious university, et cetera, you know. Exactly. Dr. James Papandria joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Rissinello, and we're in the breach, and we are on the Veritas Catholic Network. We're discussing Jim's new book, Reading the Church Fathers, A History of the Early Church and the Development of Doctrine. Joe Rissinello. Before we get into the book, you, you triggered something in my head. Uh, you probably smelled the smoke burning, um, but uh, what's it called? I want to just, I, I'd like to hear your comment, because I've worked with um, non-denominational Christians um, in a Bible study for a while, and my intent was to debunk the misconceptions. Um, I didn't succeed to some degree, but there was a mutual respect. And I liked the guys because uh, how I got there was from a friend of mine who left the church and he invited me to go. And I, and I was pretty grounded in my faith. I'm not looking to leave. So I said, I'll go, you know, but I'm going to go and I'm going to be Catholic at the meeting. And, yeah. um, why I bring that up is this, and this is what a priest told me, and I think he's spot on. There are many reasons why people aren't Catholic, but under those many, there's one big one that they're not saying, and that's the impediment, why they don't enter the church and find the fullness of truth. I believe that it doesn't matter how smart you are or how simple-minded you are. If you are open, particularly willing to bend the knee, bend your will, you will always find the Catholic Church. It's those impediments. You'll find a lot of these people, I'm divorced and I'm remarried. I'm not willing. The church does not allow me. I'm just, I'm not picking on people. They're not willing to, you see, ultimately we conform our life to God. That's how you get into heaven. God does not conform his life to Joe Restinello because I am nobody. And God is somebody. So I have to conform my life to him. It's that willingness. And just because you're smart doesn't mean you have that willingness. You just come up with better reasons why you don't have that willingness. Please talk about that because that's what I have found when I've and I have it, it was like seven years every Wednesday. So, I mean, I, I got a good dose of it. And when you kind of dug underneath the, the, the sheets a little bit, you're kind of like this guy's bitter because his wife died. This guy is divorced. This guy is this. This guy has that issue. The issue is you. You won't bend your knee. Yeah. Well, you're not wrong. I mean, uh, in, in fact, the you know the smarter a person is, it can it can actually make it more, um, you know, it, sort of easier for them to to find excuses because uh, you know ultimately ultimately it's an issue of pride and and you know the modern world modernism the, the sort of you know post enlightenment modern world has been going farther and farther down the road of making every individual his or her own highest authority right and we don't want to give that up 
we want to be our own God, basically. We want to be our own highest authority. And if you tell someone, yeah, well, you know, the Christian faith is about sort of submitting to God as highest authority and, um, and, and submitting our wills to God's will, um, that, that's, a, that's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow, especially if they're invested in a lifestyle that's dependent on, you know, them sort of asserting their own wills and, and making, you know, their own uh, decisions and interpreting scripture their own way and making themselves their own highest authority. And so, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're right on. I think that's true. I think I think I think Lutheran, you know, Lutheranism that that you know what he put forth. Um, if you know anything about Luther, leads to that mindset. I mean, it's just it's just it's inevitable. I remember myself on my, on my journey. Now I never left the church, but I certainly wasn't practicing by any objective standard. Okay, but the, the uh, you know as soon as I thought about coming back to the church to start to practice, the first thing was ah, uh, that means I can't do that. Or that means I can't do that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'm a, I'm a sinner. Don't get me wrong. But the thing is, you know, exactly. You got to come to the realization. No, I can't keep living the way I can't keep living like a like a functional atheist. OK, and then call myself a Catholic. Doesn't work that way. But Jim Papadria is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasolo, Joe Rosinello. Um, And we do want to dive into the book, you know, but you know, we, we, we got on track a little bit, but that's fine. Reading the Church Fathers, the history of the early church and the development of doctrine. Jim, I have a question for you. Now, here's the thing. You talk about the history of the early church, okay? If I hear one more time, this is the worst time in church history. This is absolutely the worst time in church. See, we we could be guilty of it too, us Catholics, okay? You know, somehow like, you know, the 21st century, okay, is the worst time in human history. But yeah, we could point to a few times where it was just as bad or worse, particularly in the early church. Talk about that a little bit. When you talk about, let's say, a lot of the things that plagued, uh, you know, the Christians and, and, and the early church and make our listeners understand, no, no, this has been going on. This has been going on for about 2,000 years. Yeah, I mean, 3,000 years ago, a wise man wrote, there is nothing new under the sun. And, you know, what 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 has been comes back around. The, the thing is, though, is that many of us are old enough to remember living in a culture that was significantly influenced by Catholic Christian values. So, it, you know, those, those of us who are old enough can remember a Christian culture. Mm. But guess what, folks? That's over. It's done. We have come full circle and we've gone back in many ways to uh, living in a culture like the early Christians lived in, which was, you know, a pagan, um, you know, it, it was it was a culture in which the church had to be countercultural, right? Um, because if you believe that that you know there are absolute truths that that good and evil are absolutes, truth is not whatever you want to make it. Um, if you believe that all life is sacred, right, you have to be countercultural now in a, in a way that the early Christians did because the, the, the early Christians in the Roman Empire, um, you know, the, the Roman Empire was a culture of death like you could not imagine. Um, and, and in that context, Christians, if they were going to be faithful, they were marginalized and they were persecuted. And, and that is going on again today. And, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. You've probably heard this before, but, you know, faithful Christianity, faithful Catholicism is the last acceptable prejudice, you know, that, that no is doubt. correct in our world. And, and that's because we are being countercultural. And by being countercultural, we're critiquing the culture, which is exactly what the early Christians did. And it's exactly what got them in trouble right? It was their failure to sort of live and let live uh, that got them in trouble with their Roman culture. Yeah, we wouldn't, you know, the early, the early Christians would not, they wouldn't pinch the incense to the emperor. Right. That's simple. Right. Not bending my knee to, I'm not bending my knee to you. It's, you know, and that's exactly what they want. And yes, you know, we, we, we're, 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 we're getting like the backhand 
Okay, like like you know that 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 kind of like that backhand that you get when you when you're fresh. You know, Jim, you're fresh. You know, you're not getting in line. It's like you're a child. They give you the backhand. There's Christians around the world that are, that are that are getting killed. I hope people understand that in the world there are people who identify as Christians. All right, followers of Jesus Christ who are being killed for their belief. Okay, so we should like a little learn a little bit from them. All we're all we're being asked to do in America, in particular, is just step up a little bit. Step up a little bit. Okay, we, you know, we, we, I know we're getting the backhand. Others are getting killed. You could deal with the backhand. Step up and speak and, you know, speak and live the truth, which is Jesus Christ. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. My mother was Italian. She hit me with the phone. Forget about the backhand. I got the wooden spoon. <laughs> She'd be like, what are you doing? Bam! Hit me with the phone. She's talking to her sister. Uh, and I learned. <laughs> Neither, I just wanted to throw that at you. But uh, Jim, um, the early church refuted heresies. Um, basically, what can we learn from them? Um, because frankly, I, I think right now, there is a lot of confusion. I wouldn't go so far as their heresies. I would call it confusion. What can we learn from clarity? Uh, well, I think, you know, I, I think that there are heresies out there today. And, and a lot of times the people who promote them don't even know they're promoting heresies. And they certainly don't necessarily know they're promoting the same heresies that have been around for 2000 years. But here's the thing. It goes back to what I was saying about people wanting to be their own highest authority and about this sort of modernist and individualist um, mindset that... Um, that truth is whatever I make it, truth is whatever I want it to be, that I can define my own truth, and it doesn't have to be the same truth as yours. That's the problem. And, you know, Judeo-Christian thought is based on sort of the opposite idea. You don't get to make up your own truth. Truth is given to you, right? And I mean, look, this is, this is the Garden of Eden. God says, here's my truth. Adam and Eve say, yeah, we're going to make up our own truth, right? That's the, that's the original sin right there. But the, but the point is that, it, that you know, when, when you ask, like, how did the early church refute heresies? It, it did it by emphasizing that truth is received. It's received through revelation, through, through inspired scripture. It's received through the incarnation of Jesus Christ as a human and his life, ministry, death, resurrection, right? This is received truth. Truth has to be received, and then it has to be handed down throughout the generations. We, we, you know, we call that tradition. But, but it's so important to understand that you know, the, the individual does not get to just choose what parts of tradition to jettison because they seem old fashioned and, and what truths, uh, you know, he or she can make up, uh, you know? And so, so the, the early church starts with this idea that there, there is something called truth that, that you either accept or you don't. Right. Um, and then, you know, then sort of affirming that, that, that truth is really all oriented toward, our reunion with God, our being reconciled with God and our salvation. And here's the problem. All heresy has implications for salvation. So, you know, sometimes my students will say, well, you know, what's the big deal? Like, why couldn't the early church just let everyone believe whatever they want? You know, what, what, what would be so wrong with that? Well, because a lot of those beliefs don't lead to salvation. Right. And, and for the early church, it all comes down to the two natures of Christ. Jesus Christ has to be both divine and human. Those are his two natures. If you say he's human but not divine, then there's no divine intervention in the um, in the incarnation. And he, he can't be our savior. Our, you know, we're 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 hopeless. But if you say, on the other hand, that he was divine uh, but not human, well, yeah, that's divine intervention, but then he's not one of us. So again, he can't be our savior. So all of these heresies have implications for salvation because it's only through, you know, the 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 truths that have been handed down through through within the church that we know what salvation is and how it is received. And, um, you know, heresies always, the, the word heresy literally means to go off on a tangent and heresy always takes you off on a tangent majoring on the minors and you lose that union with god that you know that is our ultimate goal you know it, I, it's, I'm, it's, 
Go ahead, Joe. No, because I was going to say, when you lose that union, you lose your peace. You lose your joy. You oh, see, yeah. that's the measure. Like, like on Earth, let's not even talk about heaven here. Mm. Here, um, it, it's again, funny. Real quick, Joe. It's funny you use the word joy. What I was thinking about when Jim Papandrea was talking here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasolo, Joe Rosanello, we're discussing Jim's book, Reading the Church Fathers: A History of the Early Church and the Development of Doctrine. Joe, when you use the word joy, what came to my mind? You were talking about authority. You're talking about you know not being heretical. Like I, I couldn't help but think of Scripture where um, after the first Council of Jerusalem, when Paul brought the news of Peter's decision back to the disciples, they received the news with joy because a decision had been made and they received it with joy this is not oppression when you're guided by a church okay that's guided by the holy spirit it is the source of joy i don't feel that there the church is oppressing me because it made a decision on faith and morals that's the difference between 2000 years ago and now every time the church says something it's like oh oh you hear the huffing and puffing out there then it was received with joy now it's received with like you know i don't even know what i i'm sorry jim i go off on tangents sometimes no, not not a heretical tangent <laughs> no no right <laughs> there are good tangents yeah uh but yeah i mean that's the thing it's like i'm sorry joe but when you mentioned joy that's that's what i thought about uh, no but, but, you, but, you but were in terms say. of heresy it comes down to again obedience like you have to accept you have to accept. I recently, we just had Divine Mercy Sunday, and I watched a documentary on Divine Mercy Sunday. That took decades before it was accepted. And the people who put it forth were rejected. And they accepted. And they persevered. And it won the day. You see, we just don't want to accept as people. And that's where heresy comes from. We still have, I'm glad you brought up Adam and Eve, because we still are in the garden. It's yeah. still there. I know better. No, you don't. No, you yeah. don't. I don't right. care who you are. I don't care. I don't care if you went to Harvard. I don't care if you're an engineer from MIT. And I don't care if you're a Bedouin walking across the Algerian desert. You don't know. God does. He started a church. So listen, and that's that's the root of all heresy. It's yeah. going on. Like you said, you hear it constantly. I drive by churches. They're like celebrating same-sex unions. Really? Really? You're celebrating that? You're affirming that? Like that's in Leviticus. I can read. So can you. Where do you get that one from? I don't get it. I'm not saying you should be mean. We should love people. But you got to speak the truth. Your yes has to be yes. Your no has to be no. That's in the Bible, too. That's my rant. I'm a crazy Italian person from New Jersey. Jim, real quick, we, 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 might go to the other side. <laughs> we might go to the other side of the break on this one. But talk about one, one of the things that fascinates me is, is this, this, uh, this document known as the Didache. Okay, a lot of people don't know about it. Um, and that brought clarity. Um, it, 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 as far as as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, on moral issues um, and and, uh, and things you know we're supposed to be doing in the church. Uh, just introduce that. If we go to the other side of the break, is fine. Uh, what is the Didache, and what can we learn from it? Well, it is a very important document in the life of the early church, it, and it's written within the first century, so it's contemporary with some of the later documents in the New Testament. Um, and it's kind of a uh, church order manual and uh, sort of ethical treatise. And it's a lot of it is actually instructions for priests who are catechizing people, preparing them for baptism, uh, et cetera. And so it talks about the sacraments. It talks about uh, Christian morality. And, um, you know, one of the most important things about it is uh, that it takes a stand very early in the life of the church on abortion. And, you know, people may not know that abortion in Roman culture, uh, abortion was so accepted that you could kill the baby after it was born. I mean, that was, you know, that was basically just a normal part of Roman culture. And the Didache says no to that. The Didache says, you know, there's a, there's a way of life and a way of death. And we Christians choose the way of life and we do not expose or abort or kill our babies. And 
This became a mark of very Christian identity of who we are as Christians. Christians are people who don't do this thing, right? Jim, we want to pick that. I want to pick that up on the other side of the break. It's so important, so important. Jim Papandrea joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Jim, where can folks buy the book? The book is Reading the Church Fathers: A History of the Early Church and the Development of Doctrine. So that's out by Sophia Press. So where can folks uh, pick that up? Yeah, my Amazon author page is drjimsbooks.com. So if you just go to drjimsbooks.com, that'll jump you right to my Amazon author page. It's right there. Awesome. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. We're going to come back and pick up on what Jim was just talking about, uh, the early church in the Roman Empire, the Didache. So stick around. We're going to be cut. We're going to come right back after the break. Listen to all five of our original Veritas shows. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank, where Bishop Frank Caggiano talks about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. You can hear The Frontline with Joe and Joe every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talks to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, tune in for the only late-night talk show on Catholic media anywhere. It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. And at noon on Friday is Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Right after that, at 1230, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where we put the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, and we are way in the breach with Dr. James Papandrea. We're talking about his new book, Reading the Church Fathers, A History of the Early Church and the Development of Doctrine. So, Jim, before the break, you were going on about the Didache, which is explicit in its condemnation of abortion and how the how the early church was marked by their 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 um, their opposition, uh, at least especially on that to to abortion. 2000 years ago. So please uh, pick that up, if you will. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. We were talking about this issue of how in the early church, uh, Christianity had to be so countercultural. And to convert to Christianity meant a radical lifestyle change through and through, especially for, you know, people who weren't Jewish. So someone coming from pagan Roman culture into the church, huge lifestyle change. So it's interesting because catechesis back then, preparation for baptism, was actually more about how to live as a Christian under the moral expectations of the church, more so than theology, right? I mean, you learned the Our Father, you learned a creed, but people figured you'd get your theology, you know, after your baptism from the Mass, so preparation for baptism was about morality. And, and so, you know, these markers of what a Christian is, Christians are people who don't do this and this being, you know, abortion. And, and there are other things, you know, we, we don't submit our young sons to the mentorship. I'm putting mentorship in air quotes here because it's pedophilia, the mentorship of older men. You know, we don't submit our children to that. We don't, um, you know, the, the apologists would say later, you know, we share our food, but not our wives, right? So, I mean, these become, you know, how you know someone is a Christian. And, and the point of all this is simply that, you know, throughout all of the history of the church until very, very recently, there would be no such thing as a so-called pro-choice Catholic, just impossible, right? It, it, would, it, would, be, it would be unthinkable. Um, and now, you know, we have these politicians who, who call themselves that or whatever. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's it, a shame it, and it it's confusing, shame. actually. Yeah. And, and that's why there's a need for clarity. But I love the fact that this book talks about the issues, the cultural issues all the way back to Rome. And this is why our listeners should be getting books like this and reading it, because have things really changed? Have people really changed? We're the same. People are the same. We might dress a little differently. 
You know, we maybe, got computers. Yeah, there we go. But, you know, but it's the same behavior over and over and over again. And I, I want to explore the theme you talked about, saying how Christians back in Rome, they they were countercultural. They went again. Like, that should be today. Like, to be honest with you, your life, we don't have to say we're Catholic. It should be evident. Like, that's the problem is we go along. I always say this to my wife, Jim, because I live near an acidic Jewish community. And I always say, now, clearly, I have theological differences with them. I like them as people. Actually, I have a great deal of respect for them, actually. But they let people know very clearly, this is what I believe. This is what I do. This is the community that I live in. And to be honest with you, we're in the world. We're not of the world. And I say, good for you. We have to do that. People should look at you, look at me, look at Joe, and they should be like, dude, this dude's Catholic. He doesn't yeah. act like that. He doesn't do that. He has a family. We're not doing it. And I'm telling you, I, overall, we just go along. When's the last time you saw an Hasidic Jewish family send their kid to public school to get indoctrinated by gender ideology? Never. Catholics do it. No problem. I got no problem with that. I got no problem with that. Then we wonder why. Jim, I, yeah. Joe, I'm sorry, Joe. What was, no, what, was right. what, what was your question, though? No, I'm just screaming. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I just like your comment. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it. I think it all goes back to that thing about people wanting to be their own highest authority and wanting to make all their decisions for themselves. And, you know, I, you, you guys may remember this, but I don't know if it was back in the seventies or whatever, there was this thing, this sort of movement in psychology called, uh, I'm okay. You're okay. Remember that? <laughs> I do actually. Yeah. That was one of the worst things that ever happened to human culture ever because, because it, it sent us down this road where people believe they have a right to see themselves as the best they're ever going to be like, like, well, this is how I am. And I'm just going with it. And a lot of popular music today, and probably shouldn't get me started on popular music, but a lot of popular go music. Ahead, Jim, you're in the breach with Joe and Joe. <laughs> but don't worry about it. Knock I, yourself out. I, I, I go on this rant about popular music where the, you know, the lyrics, there's a whole genre of popular music where the lyrics are basically saying this, I'm a hot mess, but I'm going to embrace it. So deal with it. Right. And, and this is the problem because people have been conditioned to believe that they have a right not to improve themselves, right? And so anything that starts to feel like uh, something's going to make me try to, you know, be a better person, or I'm going to have to work on something, or I'm going to have to, you know, do something uncomfortable to better myself. No, they don't want anything to do with it. That, and, and, you know, I think the problem goes back to that kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's so many examples um, in, in the culture. It, it, it gets to a point where you, you can't even call it a culture. It's just, it's a, it's a swamp is what it is. Okay. Um, and we're not talking about the political swamp in DC. We're talking about our culture. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's an abyss um, that we really shouldn't even go near. In fact, you know, we, we have to, we have to, that's why we're doing this show. That's why Joe and I started doing our show three years ago, four years ago um, for, for that reason to say, no, 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 no. No, no, we're we're actually the ones that are going to stand in the breach and say, no, we're not going to allow this to happen, and not, and not only we're we not going to allow it for our kids, we're going to attack it. We're we're going on the attack, um, because that's what we do. Jim Papadria joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Jim, let's get back to the book. Doctrine develops. That's what uh, we understand as Catholics. Okay, I, I guess it was Newman that 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 uh, in the 19th century that really you know uh, expounded on this idea that you know doctrine is rock solid, no question about it, but it does develop. Talk about uh, you know one of the things we do here at Joe and Joe Jim uh, at the front line with Joe and Joe Jim is that we try to educate people, including ourselves, because we certainly don't know far from knowing everything. How does doctrine develop? Yeah, well, you know, that's a great question. And you got to make the distinction between development, and then something like we might call evolution, right? Doctrine develops, but it does not evolve. And what I mean by that is, you know, the development of doctrine is an ongoing um, clarification of doctrine. Um, 
but doctrine does not evolve in the sense of change. So you, you know, you don't have a situation where something that's orthodox in one generation can be not orthodox in the next generation, or something that's not orthodox in one generation can all of a sudden become uh, orthodox in the next generation. It doesn't work like that. The, you know, and, and um, I always tell my students that there, there is a sense of orthodoxy in every generation of the church's existence, and the orthodoxy of one generation becomes the foundation for the orthodoxy of the next generation as doctrine is sort of expansive, dynamic, always being uh, further clarified, but never in the sense that, um, you know, that the rug is pulled out from under you or that, that something, something major changes in that way. And, um, and, and this is a very important concept because, you know, you have these extremes. On one extreme, you have a kind of fundamentalist idea that, that doctrine is static and, and doesn't develop. On the other extreme, you have a kind of, you know, like very uh, hyper progressive idea that that doctrine is fluid and it can change over time. And what was what was heresy in one generation could be orthodoxy in another. No, you, we reject those extremes and we, we have this sort of uh, middle way of doctrine that develops but does not evolve. So that's that's kind of I how like I it. I can like you it. get. Can- can you give uh, an example, like a, a concrete example of, of, let's say, a doctrine that uh, you could think of off the top of your head that has developed, developed, as you said, not evolved, developed over time? Well, I mean, uh, virtually every doctrine has in some way or another. Um, our, uh, our, our Eucharistic theology is uh, clear from the beginning. So, uh, you know, I have to say up front, the, the, the early church fathers absolutely did uh, believe and affirm the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist as they understood it, um, but they didn't have the word transubstantiation, right? Now, you will sometimes hear Protestants say, oh, well, the doctrine of transubstantiation was invented in the Middle Ages. No, it wasn't. The word transubstantiation was new at a later time in the church's history, but it was just a new word that was, that was coined to describe an older idea. Right. And so in the development of doctrine, we have the doctrine of real presence from the beginning. We just didn't have the word transubstantiation to describe it until later. We didn't have, you know, like um, medieval scholastic categories of of substance and accidents necessarily to describe these things. But the belief was there from the beginning. Um, another also, one, immaculate conception too. Didn't that like, basically that wasn't from the declaration of it formally that took time. That's right. That's right. You can see the seeds of that doctrine from the beginning of the church, at least from the second century, but it wasn't called that necessarily. And it wasn't formally, uh, defined until much later. That's true. Yeah. So it, it, it works like that. It has to do with, you know, ways in which the church will later, clarify, define, and name things that you can already see in the early church. So it's, it's, not, it's not changing, it's not contradicting, but it's explaining, and it's clarifying, and it's expanding on it. Absolutely. Dr. James Papandrea joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello on the Veritas Catholic Network 1350 on your AM dial. We are discussing reading the church Fathers, a history of the early church and the development of doctrine. That's Dr. James Papandrea's new book published by Sophia Press, Dr. Jim's books on Amazon. Jim, we never tell anybody to go to Amazon to buy books. However, you do have a page there. So in this case, we're going to make an exception because you actually have a page on Amazon. You can buy it from Sophia Press also. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah. And uh, Sophia Institute Press is the their website. I think so. You have to put that whole thing in there, Sophia Institute Press. But yeah, they would love for you to go right to them and buy the book. Absolutely. Well, we always emphasize the need to support our Catholic authors, our Catholic publishers. Um, so absolutely. So we would recommend. And and this is obviously for ourselves. We need to understand the history of our church. Okay. So the books like this that Jim Papadri has written are important. With that, Joe Racinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. Let's talk sacraments, Jim, because uh, honestly, that is what makes the church. Well, obviously, what makes the church is Christ. Um, but the sacraments 
is what keeps me in the church, to be honest with you. Um, the sacraments, uh, particularly the Eucharist, confession, um, the Eucharist is viaticum. It's a fancy word, which means food for the journey. We need the Eucharist. We need confession. How did that develop? Let's be like, you know, because like, obviously, at the Last Supper, that was the first, you know, breaking of the bread. Um, and I will say this, they didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. Well, 70% of America doesn't get it still. So things haven't changed too much. <laughs> so talk right. about how uh, it's, it's developed and how, um, you know, we've come to where we are now. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in large part, the sacraments have a background in Hebrew rituals, right? And so the Eucharist, you can, you can look back to Passover meals and, and Sabbath meals. Um, in baptism, you can look back to the, the uh, purification baths and stuff like that. And there's an important theological point in that, which is this. It is God who is doing something in the sacrament, not just humans, right? And, you know, one of the things that I think the Protestant Reformation did and, and did, did Christianity in general a disservice in doing this is, is it, it makes the sacraments something more that people do than that God do. And especially when you get into the Radical Reformation where you know, like uh, only only adults can be baptized and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's it turned baptism from something God was doing in the life of a person into sort of a human um, rite of passage that commemorated a human decision that a human made to convert to something, right? And it, the sacraments are not primarily acts of humans. The sacraments are primarily acts of God. And that's why, you know, in Catholic sacramental theology, you know, we talk about how a person who receives a sacrament is never the same afterwards. Agreed. And some of the sacraments are unrepeatable for that reason. And, um, and, and, and so I think that's a super important point to get from looking at the sacraments in the early church. The other thing is very interesting. I find out, you know, like the, the Protestants will say that, oh, well, there's only two sacraments, you know, in the early church, um, baptism and, uh, and communion, Eucharist, um, which in, that in itself is not true. But, but even if you just look at those two sort of main sacraments at the beginning, each one was always two in one. So in other words, from the beginning of the church's existence, baptism always included confirmation. So in the Western church, we have separated those out into two sacraments, but the confirmation was always there in the laying on of hands after a baptism. And the Eucharist always assumed the confession of sins. You, you would never receive the Eucharist without first confessing your sins. Now, you know, the, the, the sacrament of, of confession, penance, reconciliation, that also develops over time and isn't really formalized until maybe the third century, but, but confession is always there. And, um, and so you can see that uh, in, in the sense that, that Christians receive a sacrament, we don't, we don't do a sacrament, right? I mean, I'm not using necessarily the technical liturgical language here. We but, understand you, Jim. We're but, from New Jersey. Yeah. We get it. We don't do the sacrament. We receive the sacrament because the sacrament is something God is doing. That's the point. I agree. Yeah, and I'll tell absolutely. you, it's it's that lack of understanding, you know, that make people leave the church. How, like Peter said, where am I going to go? Where yeah. am I going? Exactly. I can't get confession anywhere else. Confessing to Joe Pasillo, my friend, my brother-in-law, doesn't do it. I have to go to a priest, and I encounter the Lord there. I feel it, and don't tell me it's psychological. It's like if I eat a big meal on Sunday. I know I'm full. When I leave the confessional, I get it. It's an encounter with God. When we're receiving the Eucharist, people, we have to, I think, and, I, and I'd like to hear your comment, on this as well, because you were once Protestant, now you're Catholic, and now you teach Catholicism. We have to get people to have that encounter. It's like when you encounter God in the Eucharist, everything changes. You're not bored at Mass. You know what's going on, whether you're a scholar or, frankly, you sweep the street. You still get it, and you're yeah. not going anywhere, and that's what changes the world. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, another one of the another one of the Protestant myths that I was that I believed, you know, coming up was, well, you know, if I got communion more than like once a month, if I got it more often than that, it would it would lose its meaning. It would get old. It would lose its meaning. Now, in, in you know, an analogy, I'm Italian too, by the way. So an analogy would be like, go to Rome and tell an Italian person, like, if you get pasta more than once a month is it going to lose its meaning for you is it going to is it going to stop being tasty right no it doesn't work that way tasty every time <laughs> no, i know and uh and and i mean maybe that's a lame analogy but you get the idea when i became catholic or when i came back to the catholic church one thing that i realized immediately was it does not get old it does not lose its meaning the opposite in fact um and so uh, yeah, you know, and I've had Protestants tell me that, uh, you know, they they went into a Catholic church for one reason or another, and they were just sort of dumbfounded by the fact that they could really feel the presence of God there more than even in their own church. It's like, yeah. Yeah, you know, because he's, I mean, he's actually there. <laughs> right. Because, right. I mean, it, and, and, you know, not everybody has the same experience, but... Um, I, I just did a uh, an interview with an atheist who was like trying to, you know, like ask me how, you know, how I know God exists. And, you know, I wasn't trying to prove the existence of God with some, you know, logical method. I just said, you know, it is my experience that I feel the presence of God. And if you if you try to tell me God doesn't exist, it's like, you know, it's like a native Alaskan trying to tell a native Floridian that palm trees don't exist. I mean, I'm surrounded by palm trees. So it's that's the experience and you 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 can only have it by being in it that's one of those things jim papadria joining us here at the front line with joe and joe when it comes to and I, we're not going to get into atheism because 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 us three paisans will go on for hours about those guys um yeah. and i say that charitably okay but that's what nothing will convince them only god only god will 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 convince them no logical argument or anything oh, like right. you know they're 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 gabados as they say in italian as, as our mothers would say um now I mentioned earlier, Jim Papandrea, that, you know, obviously, you know, we, we, we learn things, you know, from the authors that we have on the show. So here's one thing we, that the folks are going to learn from your book, um, because, you know, an author will introduce certain characters. Who is Macrina the Younger? Never you heard know, of hear, it. Never, you know, we, we, hear, <laughs> we hear about monastic life. We think about St. Benedict and, you know, the civilizing um uh, influence of monasticism in Germany, you know, like I said, with the with the yeah. Benedictines. But who is Macrina the Younger, and how does she lay the foundation for the monastic life? Yeah, she's extremely important, and you know, people might be surprised to learn there are some mothers of the church. You know, uh, they they didn't they don't write a lot of their own stuff. Some do, but Macrina is this really interesting fourth century in the East, right in what is now Turkey, and she was the older sister of St. Basil, who is supposed to be the founder of, you know, sort of the Eastern monasticism, right, after after St. Anthony, I guess. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, so she was his older sister, also the older sister of Gregory of Nyssa. These are two of the three bishops known as the Cappadocian Fathers. So Macrina was their first catechist. She was a woman who, at well, at age 12, committed her life to the vocation of religious community and at her insistence their widowed mother turned their family estate into a convent and eventually macrina became the the mother of this convent the abbess and um and so she's she was hugely influential on these these bishops who were themselves hugely influential on the church especially in the east um gregory of nyssa wrote uh uh, the story of her life, the life of Macrina after she passed away. And it, there's a really uh, interesting document called On the Soul and Resurrection, where Macrina is the teacher in that document. Now, I mean, you know, the author is putting some words in her mouth probably uh, to teach, but, but this is one of the most important early church documents on our Christian doctrine of the resurrection and Macrina is presented as the teacher of the doctrine. So, yeah, it's just fascinating character, super influential, um, especially in the East. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's just tons of these characters that, that 
uh, people would love reading about. Well, that's why you have to go out and buy the book. All right. Dr. James Papandrea joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. So you can go on Sophia Press's website, Sophia Institute Press, and purchase the book, Reading the Church Fathers, a History of the Early Church and the Development of Doctrine. Um, and Jim also has an Amazon page, uh, Dr. Jim's Books, correct, J uh, Jim? Dr. Yeah, Jim's Books. Uh, if you go to drjimsbooks.com, then that domain just jumps over to the Amazon author page. Yeah, absolutely. So, Joe, we probably have time for, for one more, maybe two questions. So I'm going to hand it over to you. I want to talk about how the New Testament canon was formed because we talked about Sola Scriptura. But I, before we do that, I just want to make a comment on Macrina. You know, only saints change the world and only saints last forever their teachings who they are i want to just emphasize that to our listeners because how things are forgotten famous people people who did great things it's you know the fruit of saints last forever and and i i'll be honest with you i want to try to be one i'm not saying i'm going to be one with a capital s but all people who go to heaven become saints we're a saint you go to heaven you're a saint that's how you change the world. This woman, we're still talking about Macrina the Younger. Who talks about anybody? Like, you know, like 100 years ago, 200 years ago, people who did great things. If you mention Frank Sinatra to my son, who's six, he'll be like, who is that? <laughs> and here you are, you're talking about Macrina the Younger. I mean, for crying out loud, that should encourage people. It's, it's in God that we do things that become great and we changed the world. I just wanted to throw that at you. Um, and also, let's talk about New Testament canon. How was it formed? You're a scholar. Tell us. Everyone's telling us it's only scripture. How was it formed? Yeah, you know, that that's a great story because, um, you know, there's there's extremes on this, too. They're the people who tell you that, you know, that, that it, it, they, they present it as though, you know, Jesus handed a Bible to his disciples, you know. But then there are other people who say, oh, the church didn't have a Bible till the fourth or fifth century. Well, that's not true either. Um, but it, but it was a process uh, of sort of discerning which of the earliest Christian documents should be included in the Bible as our New Testament, right? And the number one criteria for that was it was all about authorship. If a disciple of Jesus or one of their immediate disciples had written a document, it was probably going to be in the New Testament. And then the documents that didn't make it in the New Testament were, you know, from a little farther down the line, right? Um, but also, there, there are other criteria too, like did important theologians quote these documents? I mean, the early theologians of the church are quoting the New Testament documents as authoritative, you know, very early on. Um, did a document sort of stand the test of time and, and, and use in liturgy, right? Was it read in the mass, right? Um, but it's, it's, it was a kind of a dynamic process. And it's, it's very interesting because a lot of books will present these sort of North African councils as, oh, the New Testament was decided at this council or that council. But those were just regional councils. Um, and so they didn't have universal authority. And uh, so, so a lot of people are surprised to see just how dynamic the process is. Now, there, there are some important letters from early popes, um, Pope Damasus 382, and other papal letters in the years 405 and 419 that sort of solidified our New Testament canon. Um, but, you know, as, as late as like the sixth century, the eastern half of the church almost left the book of Revelation out of their New Testament. And so, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was a kind of a dynamic process. But having said that, uh, it's not the case that the church didn't have a Bible till late because Christians are reading these documents in collections from, you know, already in the second century. Here's a collection of the four Gospels, four and only four, by the way. Here's a collection of Paul's letters, um, you know, et cetera. But, uh, but as far as, you know, a kind of a bound book that we, as we think of our Bible, yeah, it took a few hundred years to put that together. Absolutely. Jim Papandrea, we have about a minute and a half left, and we would be remiss if we did not mention Our Lady. Um, how, did the develop, how did the devotion to Our Lady, how did that emerge in the, in the history of the early church? Like I said, we have about a minute, minute and a half. 
Yeah, well, it comes up very early and it comes up from the grassroots. It's not something that was sort of imposed by the bishops on the church. It comes up through from, from the, the faith of the people. Um, there's a document from the second century called the Protevangelion, fancy name, but it's in the book. Um, but you can see in that document already in the second century that people believe in the perpetual virginity of Our Lady. Uh, you can see the seeds there of the doctrines of the Immaculate Conception and other Marian doctrines. So it's a hugely important document. Uh, again, not that it was sort of imposed on the church, but that it shows what the people already believed. And um, and then by the by the by the third century at the latest, we have like written formalized prayers asking for Mary's intercession. So even though like, the rosary doesn't come up till later, we have prayers for Mary's intercession. We have belief in these Marian doctrines very early in the church. It's, it's all there from the beginning. Thank you so much. James Papandrea, so where could folks buy your book uh, and where could they find out more about you uh, and, and other things that you have going on? Yeah, well, I'll just say, you know, Sophia Institute Press, I'm very grateful to them for publishing the book. So so get it from them if you can. And uh, people should check out my YouTube series, The Original Church. So I've got videos on YouTube uh, on The Original Church. And uh, if you go to whenthechurchwas1.com, one O-N-E, whenthechurchwas1.com, uh, you'll find those as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Reading the Church Fathers, A History of the Early Church and the Development of Doctrine. That is the book. The author, Dr. James Pepindri, I want to thank you for joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. You're always welcome on this show, our friend, our paisan. All right. All right. Um, and we want to and we want to thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you could have access to all of our station's content, not just the front line with Joe and Joe. And you can listen to our programming wherever you are if you have the app. And support Joe and I, if you don't mind, on social media at the Frontline TV on YouTube and also on our website, thefrontlinetv.com. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.